Well, good morning or good afternoon or good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome back to our You Lost Me at Leviticus podcast. This is part 2B, which uh, means we are walking through this series at New Denver Church called You Lost Me at Leviticus. It's 13 weeks. We are reading through the book, the Old Testament book of Leviticus uh, together. And so on Sundays, uh, we're looking at um, a passage or a lengthy passage together and talking about it that we've read together. And uh, on Sundays, we're just not able to get to all the questions that this strange and odd and primitive and seemingly outdated or irrelevant book um, raises. There's just all sorts of questions uh, and rabbit trails that we just don't have time to explore on Sundays. So um, each week, uh, my name's Norton. I'm one of the pastors at New Denver. I'm doing this midweek podcast where we're taking things a little bit deeper and exploring some of those questions um, that we didn't get a chance to on Sunday. So uh, this past Sunday, we read through and talked about Leviticus chapters 1 through 3. And we looked at uh, the first three sacrifices that the book of Leviticus describes. And I don't know if you noticed this, but um, in that message where we looked at those, I, I almost never called them sacrifices. Um, we often call them sacrifices. Uh, Leviticus describes five main sacrifices that the um, ancient people of Israel uh, offered to God, but Leviticus doesn't even use the word sacrifice that often. So I didn't. That was intentional. Because Leviticus primarily uses um, different words, uh, a word that means offering um, or gift. Uh, and so we need to keep thinking about these five things that Israelites would bring to the tent of meeting. We need to think about these as gifts or offerings. In fact, it says in the very beginning, verse uh, 2 of chapter 1, that when you draw near to me or when you bring this gift or this offering to me, here are some ways to do that intentionally or to do that well, and then that's what we looked at um, this past week. Now, there are lots of questions uh, that come up as we read through Leviticus, and we're going to explore some of those today, and um, I just want to kind of mention this because this is going to be our journey for the next many weeks. Uh, there are going to be just mentions of random things that we read that you just pause and think, what in the world? What did that mean? Why is that in there? Uh, I have no idea what's going on here. And um, sometimes we just need to do some good investigative work to understand the historical context and the ancient Israelite culture. This was 3,000 years ago in another part of the world where people spoke a different language, they had different customs, they had a different worldview, all of those things. Sometimes we just need to do some investigative work to study that context and that culture, and we can find a good answer to the question we have about some strange reference in the book of Leviticus. Uh, sometimes we'll do that investigative work, uh, which means studying what scholars and anthropologists and archaeologists and Hebrew scholars have, have sort of discovered. Sometimes we'll study and read what they say, and it won't be clear. <laughs> they will offer uh, different options or different thoughts or, or different suggestions as to what this reference or this thing meant. And, uh, and we're left just doing some speculating. We have some ideas, we have some thoughts, we have some suggestions, but we're just not totally sure. And then sometimes there are references we'll come across where we just have no idea. I mean, we, we, can, we can guess, and, uh, but at the end of the day, we just don't know. Um, and, and, and that can be frustrating at times, but if you just pause to think about that... Um, even in our own culture, we do things that will seem really strange to people living in a different culture or who maybe are living hundreds of years from now and look back on it. They might look at this holiday that we celebrate every year called Christmas, and they would ask, why in the world were they cutting trees down in the forest and then putting trees inside of their houses? 
and trying to keep the trees alive for a few weeks by putting water in a bowl underneath it. And then when the tree dies, it's like they're surprised. And so they just throw it. Why are they doing that? Why are they putting decorations on this tree? Why are they putting cookies and milk out on Christmas Eve? Why are they just leaving it there? And then someone sneaks down and eats it. And then they all act surprised the next morning. Why do they do? Why are there socks in front of the fireplace hanging up there? Why are there lights, electric lights that they string up in all of the trees in their front yard during this one month? Why in the world are these crazy people doing this? these things, right? So when you stop and think about it, we do some odd things as well. And people hundreds of years from now will, will be perplexed trying to figure out why we do some of the customs and the cultural things that we do. So keep that in mind. When we read Leviticus, there are going to be details mentioned all of the time that are not explained at all because they didn't need to explain it. People in that culture would have just known exactly what it meant or what was being talked about when I mention stockings in front of the fireplace or decorating the tree or putting the cookies out on Christmas Eve. Everyone knows exactly what I'm talking about right now. I don't have to explain why we do that. We all just understand it. It's totally familiar to us, but people in a different culture and a different time, it won't be familiar at all. So when we're reading Leviticus, there are things that are going to seem odd and strange and totally weird us that we don't have good answers for, but it wouldn't have been weird to them. And they didn't explain it to us because they didn't need to explain it because we weren't in their minds when they wrote this down. They were simply writing it down and collecting these ideas and these writings for themselves. So keep all of that in mind as we move forward in reading the book of Leviticus. Now, Let's jump in and explore a few questions that these first three chapters, these first three gifts or offerings raise. So the first one we looked at is called the burnt offering or the whole burnt offering. And you might have noticed that it says uh, that only a male animal uh, can be offered for the whole burnt offering. And as we walk through all of the offerings, you'll see that that's the case with most of them. There's a few offerings where a female um, ox or a female uh, sheep is acceptable, but most of them, it says, it requires a male animal. And you might have wondered, why is that, right? Why is that? And the answer might surprise you. Now, let me tell you, uh, we don't know for certain Nowhere does it say, here's why you can only offer a male uh, animal, a bull, um, or a ram for this uh, sacrifice or this offering. We don't know the answer for certain. The text of Leviticus never addresses this question explicitly. Um, and I got to be honest, I grew up in the church, and I've known that this is a was a part of this system, and I always just thought that this was representative of patriarchal culture, right? We know ancient culture, uh, Hebrew culture, like most cultures, was very patriarchal. Um, Men were the leaders, and sometimes that meant that men were seen as more important than women. And so I just assumed that meant that they believed only male animals. Male animals were more important than female animals, and so they were the only animals that were worthy of, to be sacrificed because female animals would not have been as worthy or as important. But get this, it is probably the exact opposite. Stop and think about this for a second. If you have a herd of oxen or a flock of sheep or a flock of goats, which would be more important to you? If this is your life, tending to these animals and these Uh, provide the food for your family and your livelihood, which are more important to you, the males of your flock or the females of your flock? (laughs) Yeah, you guessed it. Probably the females. The females would have been way more important because the females were the ones that provided the reproduction. The females were the ones that gave birth to more animals. The males would have been more expendable in that society. 
You didn't need as many male animals for breeding purposes, right? You needed to keep up the number of females. The number of females you had in your flock uh, uh, set the standard for how many could reproduce and how much you could keep uh, growing your flock. And so most of the time, probably in this offering, this gift system, most of the time a male would do as a gift to God but you couldn't afford to just keep bringing only females because if you only brought females to to be sacrificed or to be given over to God, you wouldn't be able to maintain your herds and your flocks for very long. They would dwindle really quickly. The females were much more valuable in that culture. And the ladies are saying right now, amen, right? Uh, The females were more valuable. And so that's probably why... Most of the time, provision is made for the sacrifices or for the offerings to just be males because they were more expendable. Now, here's another question uh, you might have wondered when we started reading through or you read on your own. Why are so many different parts of the animal specified in so many different ways, right? Um, so for example, chapter one, when it talks about the burnt offering, um, in verse six, it says you are to skin the burnt offering and you're to cut it into pieces. And then the sons of Aaron, the priests are to put on the fire, um, put fire on the altar, arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron, Aaron's sons, the priests shall arrange the different pieces that you've cut up, um, including, um, the head and the fat on the wood that is burning on the altar. You're to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is then to burn all of it on the altar. So you're to cut it in pieces, and uh, and then it seems like there's a specific order. You're supposed to put the head on the altar and then the fat on the altar, and then the internal organs. So why do you have to put it in this order? Well, we don't know, right? We, we, we just... We don't know for certain. Um, There is uh, some scholars who have thought about this a lot. There's one scholar in particular. Her name is Mary Douglas. Uh, She was a world-renowned anthropologist. So she studied people and why they do the things they do, and particularly in ancient cultures. Uh, She was from Great Britain. Uh, She lived in Africa for uh, a time, and she studied what primitive cultures did there, and she studied what ancient cultures have done through their writings. And she focused on this idea of purity and cleanliness and religious ritual and the intersection of all of those things. In fact, um, and you'll see how this becomes so important, the book of Leviticus became a focus of her life. And uh, she tried to understand what all of the instructions that we're going to read in a few weeks, all about purity and cleanliness, she tried to understand what all that meant. Uh, She wrote a book called Purity and Danger, and then she later wrote this watershed book called Leviticus as Literature. It reshaped how many scholars thought about and began to understand um, Leviticus. Anyways, she believes that everything in Leviticus in light of their culture and the way they viewed things, was about moving from the common to the holy. From things that were common or part of everyday life to things that were holy and sacred and set apart and unique and distinct from everyday life. So when you move into the tent of meeting, this, this, this place where all this is taking, you move from outside the camp, which is common, into the courtyard, and then you move into the holy place that's inside of the tent, and then in the center of the holy place is the most holy place. That's where God lives. And so you are moving into deeper and deeper holiness as you move in between spaces. And so she suggests that in the Hebrew worldview, everything was viewed this way. Space was viewed this way, and even our bodies were seen this way. Even the physical body of an animal. And so the head, in their worldview, would have been the most common or ordinary part of your body. The fat in your torso that connects to your internal organs, that would be more holy. And then your internal organs would be the most holy or sacred 
part of you. Ancient Hebrews believed that. They believed that your gut, your gut was the center of your will, the center of your intuition, the center of your very life and soul, right? And we don't think that way anymore. In our modern culture, we tend to think the head is that way, or, or maybe the heart. We talk about the head and the heart. But in, in ancient Hebrew culture, the gut, your gut, your internal organs were believed to be that way. So she says, maybe that's what this order is about, right? When you burn this animal, this sacrifice, you start with the head, uh, which is the most common, and then you move to the fat, and then you move to the internal organs. You're working your way to the most sacred and holy part of the animal. Now, I don't know, you know, it's an interesting theory. Um, and, and there might be some totally different reason. It might have nothing to do with that whatsoever. We just don't know, but it, it is a, an interesting theory. Now, another question might be when, when we read that is, why did they wash the internal organs and the legs with water, right? Why did they do that? I mean, that's interesting. It doesn't say that they have to wash any other part of the animal, Um and this probably speaks to that issue of cleanliness. So we're going to see in this culture um, that bodily fluids uh, like blood um, and particularly uh, urine or dung, right, poop, uh, were, were thought of as dirty and, and they contaminated you. They, they were just, they were not clean, right? And so for various reasons, um, they had those these views and we'll unpack that more um, in some coming weeks, but but blood is included in this ritual of sacrifice because it was very important. Um, but if there was any uh, poop or urine, to be graphic, um, that was a part of this offering, uh, that would make things unclean. The altar, which was a holy sort of place, that, that would become unclean if there was poop or urine that got on it. Um, the whole tabernacle area would become unclean. The priests who were doing this, uh, they would become unclean. Um, and so if you've ever cleaned an animal after hunting um, or even fishing, uh, you know that when you clean and treat the animal in order to eat it, uh, the guts, the internal organs are full of what? Right? Poop. Um and, uh, and so there's this provision in there that you should clean all of that first. And you should also clean the legs, right? Because if you think about the legs of a bull, a bull that's been in a pen with a whole bunch of other bulls where they poop on the ground, right? There's a decent chance they've been walking around in that and on their hooves, uh, they're very unclean, right? So this sounds like such an odd detail when reading it, but basically it's just saying like, hey, you're offering this gift. You're slaughtering a bull. There's going to be blood everywhere. Hey, the blood is symbolic for some things, so do some stuff with that. But you should pause and clean the legs and clean the internal organs before you burn them because, because they're not clean. There's some stuff on them that's not really holy or ritually clean, and it would just be improper to get everything there unclean with this stuff. It would be improper to burn it that way, and so you need to clean it and you need to wash those parts first. Does that make sense? Uh, now, one more question about all of these animal parts. Um, it says uh, in chapter 3, um, chapter 3 talks about the fellowship offering. Um, it says in verse 14, there's this part where it says, uh, you burn and you give to God the internal organs and the fat connected to them. Um, and you remember the fellowship offering, you, you give God the internal organs and the fat, but then you actually eat the rest of the meat. You and the priests eat the rest of the meat. But then it says, verse 17, chapter 3, this is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. So keep doing this. What I'm telling you now is important. Wherever you live, you're not going to be in the wilderness forever. You're going to go live other places and the generations to come keep doing this. It says, this is a lasting ordinance. You must not eat any fat or any blood. And I don't know about you, but I just kind of thought, huh, why is that? Why don't, 
why couldn't the Israelites, why, why couldn't they eat fat and blood? Why was it so important? Why is this mentioned right here? And then there's going to be some other times later in, in Leviticus we're going to read where it says the same thing, especially about blood. Do not eat the blood. Well, the term fat here in verse 17 probably refers both to the fat and to the internal organs. Probably refers to both of those things. The things in the fellowship offering that you always give to God, you never eat them yourself. Why not? Well, again, we don't know for certain why, but probably goes back to that idea that these parts, the internal organs and the fat connected to them, were seen as the most holy parts, which means they were the, the, the best parts of the animal. And, and because of that, uh, maybe this text is simply saying, like, you just always give the best parts to God, right? You can eat everything else. But the best part, the most holy part, the most sacred part, always reserve that for God. So maybe that's why you are never supposed to eat the fat. But then there's the blood. And blood in their culture is always a sign of life. In fact, it's not just a sign of life. It is the sign of life. And so when you have blood inside of you and it's coursing through your veins and everything is good, then you are most alive. But when you begin to lose your blood, when an animal loses its blood, when blood is shed in any way or spilled in any way or lost in any way, then it is almost as if you are now entering into the realm of death, not life. And so when blood is spilled, it is a serious thing. It is, ser- it is not to be taken lightly. It is a serious thing in their culture. And so in Genesis 9, you can go back and read that. We don't have time to explore the whole story that's going on there. But in Genesis 9 and in other parts of Leviticus, God basically says, look, you can eat the meat of animals, but do not eat the blood. The blood is just, it's too holy. It's too serious. The, the blood is like a marker of the portal or the doorway between life and death. It speaks to serious, heavy things about life and death. So I don't ever want you eating the blood. Now, fast forward. 1,300 years. It's the early church. Uh, This new movement of followers of Jesus are growing up in in the first century. And most of these earliest followers of Jesus are Jewish people, and they are still following all of these instructions from Leviticus. And then there are some Gentiles. The word Gentile just means someone who is not Jewish, not ethnically from that background, doesn't follow those things. There are some Gentiles who want to become followers of Jesus. Gentiles who have never read the Old Testament, never offered a sacrifice in their life, never followed any of these instructions. They are they speak Greek. They do not speak Hebrew. They are enculturated into Roman culture. They are not Semitic. And, and, and there's this huge debate that arises among church leaders. Hey, do the Gentiles have to follow all the Old Testament laws like we've been following them? I mean, we're Jewish, we're followers of Jesus, and we follow all these Old Testament laws. Do you have to follow the Old Testament laws to be a follower of Jesus? And the answer that they come up with is this. For the most part, no. No, non-Jewish people don't have to follow all of those Old Testament laws. And we're going to unpack this answer more in this series because you've probably already been thinking Like, reading Leviticus is interesting, right? But Christians don't follow all of these rules today, do they? I mean, we don't, we're not offering sacrifice. We're not doing all of this stuff. So why are we even reading this book? And is any of it, you know, have any importance for for us? And so we're going to just keep exploring and asking that question in, in the coming weeks. But back to this early church decision, this group of leaders, they get together, and this is the story's told in Acts 15. You can read that. And the leaders uh, are James and Paul and Peter and all the other key leaders of the early church. And they talk about this issue. Do the Gentiles need to follow the Jewish uh, laws, the Old Testament laws? And here's what they decide. No, 
No, they don't. These new Gentiles who want to be followers of Jesus, they don't have to follow the hundreds and hundreds of laws and instructions that are in the New Testament. In fact, we think all they need to do is follow four of them. There are just four specific instructions. Out of all of the Old Testament teachings about all the things that you have to do and that you should do in order to be a good Jew, there's only four things that we think we should ask Gentiles to keep doing. And do you know what those four things are? In fact, do you know where they come from? They come from the book of Leviticus. And you can go read what the four things are, and you know what one of them is? Do not eat blood. (laughs) Right? That one is still important. Even if you're a Gentile, even if you've never read the Old Testament before, even if you don't have the same view of life and death and blood and sacrifice and all that, even if you don't understand all that, this is important. We want you to do this. Don't eat blood because it represents life or it represents the loss of life and it is not something to take lightly or to consume. So that's important, and that comes from Leviticus chapter 3. Now, let's move on. Uh, Let's talk real quickly about the grain offering in chapter 2, because there's some some interesting instructions. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, says that the first kind of grain offering uh, should be of the finest flour. And, And what does that mean? Well, finest does not just mean your best flour. It doesn't mean, you know, go to King Supers and look on the shelf and, and buy the most expensive flour. It literally means your finest. The flour that is the most fine, that has been crushed and sifted the most. The flour that you have spent the most time on grinding and crushing to produce the finest and best flour that you can possibly produce. Which is interesting when you pause to think about this, because I don't know if the symbolism is intended here. Um, I don't know if this symbolism uh, uh, should be applied to us, but the idea is that when something has been smashed and crushed and ground down the most, it becomes the best gift that you can offer. And if that's what's intended here, think about that. That is good news, right? Because it says, the more beat up you are, the more that I suffer, the more that I am put through the ringer in life, the more that I feel unworthy, right? That something is wrong with me because I just keep being beaten down and ground down all the time. The picture of this text is no, 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 no. All of this sifting, all of this suffering, all of this crushing is making you into a finer gift that you are able to give to God. Now, verse 1 says, you're to take this finest flour, you're to pour olive oil um, on the bread and incense uh, on it when a portion is taken to the priest that will be burned. So why are olive oil and incense used? Well, olive oil is expensive. Um, And if you think about the process used to get olive oil, it's similar, right? You have to crush olives. You have to press olives in order to get the oil. Uh, Oil is also used to anoint people. Um, It will later be used to anoint kings in Israel. It represents God's favor on someone, God's presence with someone, God's blessing on that person. So there might be some symbolism in the oil. Um, Incense. This word incense, uh, more specifically, was frankincense. Um, and frankincense, if you've heard of it, is, uh, it, it has this very sweet aroma when it's burned, right? And so again, there's more symbolism potentially going on here. When you burn this thing, it gives off a sweet and pleasing aroma. When this thing is crushed and destroyed and suffers, it actually gives a sweet and pleasing aroma. Um, Frankincense would have been expensive as well. It was not a local commodity. It was not something the Israelites could produce. Frankincense was only produced by a specific tree that was found in southern Arabia, 
So, so modern day um, Oman and Yemen, um, or on the Horn of Africa, so modern day Somalia or Ethiopia. There was a specific tree that grew there, and frankincense came from the sap of that tree. So this was something that was imported and bought in the spice trade by them. It would have been expensive. It would have been precious, right? Now, you didn't use much. You know, the gift itself, remember, the flower might not have been that costly to you, and you might have only used a pinch of olive oil and a pinch of frankincense. So overall, the gift may not have cost a lot of money, but it would have cost something. And especially in the time and the effort that you are putting into this, it would have been costly, right? So it's kind of like a gift that someone gives you when they knit you a blanket. On the whole... (laughs) The, the materials for knitting that blanket maybe didn't cost a lot of money, but the time and the effort and the intention and the thoughtfulness that they put into this gift for you would be deeply, deeply meaningful. And that's what's happening with this grain offering. Now, a couple other things. It says you can bake this, um, this flour uh, into cakes and you can bring those as offerings. Um, But look at what it also says, verse 11 uh, of chapter 2. It says, Every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast, for you are not to burn any yeast or honey in a food offering presented to the Lord. You may bring them to the Lord as an offering of the first fruits, but they are not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. So yeast and honey are okay in certain circumstances, but never they're to be burnt as an offering, as a pleasing aroma. Then it says, season all of your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all of your offerings. So uh, first question, why no yeast? Why no honey? Second question, why do you add salt, right? So first, let's talk about yeast and honey. Uh, They're not allowed in the grain offering. And and we don't know why. It just, it doesn't explain, right? So so scholars have have figured this out, uh, or tried to figure this out, and they've offered some interesting suggestions. But at the end of the day, uh, we don't know for certain, but I'll give you a couple of the suggestions that they've come up with. Um, One suggestion is we know that yeast and honey are, are transformed forming agents, right? Yeast is a leavening agent. It transforms flour um, into dough uh, that can be baked into bread, right? And then honey is basically sugar. And, and, and both of these facilitate fermentation. They transform things into different things. And so one explanation is that in the ancient world, fermentation was seen as a process of corruption, or decay, that this transformation that yeast and, and, and sugar um, uh, uh, provided to a material was always a move in a bad direction. It was always corrupting or decaying that material. Um, and we see this in some later writings. So in the New Testament, uh, Jesus talks about yeast in a negative way a couple of times. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 1, he says, he's teaching one day, he says, be on guard Um, against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And uh, he's basically saying the hypocrisy of the religious leaders is soon going to corrupt the whole community. Just like yeast corrupts bread, the hypocrisy of religious leaders will corrupt the whole community. So watch out for that. Uh, Paul, in one of his letters, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know? that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. So get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch. And then he goes on, he talks about this a little more. But for Paul, what he's saying is pride or boasting or arrogance, it's like yeast and it's going to corrupt you. It's going to just corrupt your whole life and your whole outlook and everything. So get rid of it. Right, be like unleavened bread. Don't have any of that. Um, there are some rabbinical Jewish rabbinical writings that talk about yeast in the same way around the same time. There's even Greek and Hellenistic writings that also talk about yeast in this way during the time of Jesus. So that might be the idea that's going on here in Leviticus. Right, that yeast is seen is a bad thing. Now we don't know why honey is thrown in there. Um, maybe it had to do with alcohol. Right. Alcohol requires yeast and sugar. 
uh, to ferment. And alcohol, as we even know today, right, can become a corrupting agent in someone's life when it is abused. So um, we don't know if that's what's behind all this, that yeast and sugar are somehow corrupting. A couple of problems with this suggestion are, uh, first of all, these quotes that we have from Jesus and from Paul and from other Jewish and Greek sources, these are a hundred years, not a hundred, a thousand years after the time of Leviticus, right? So keep that in mind. That's a thousand years later. So it's a bit of a leap to assume that people viewed yeast in the time of Leviticus in Moses' day is the same way, in the same way they did more than a thousand years later in Jesus' day. They might not have viewed it that way. The other problem with this idea is that yeast isn't really connected to decay and to corruption and to death. I mean, scientifically speaking, we know that yeast and honey are more like agents of life. And and they would have known that in the ancient world as well. They wouldn't have had the science to describe it, but they would have known yeast is what makes the dough rise, right? Yeast is what, or honey is what sweetens the flavor of something, right? People in the Old Testament and in ancient Israel actually had a positive attitude towards honey. Uh, Psalm 19 talks about God's word is sweeter than honey. In fact, it's even sweeter than honey that is straight from the honeycomb, right? And that, that's a positive view of honey. Honey wasn't bad. There is every reason to believe that ancient Israelites loved honey. It was sweet. It was, it was, it was good. It was pleasing to them. There is every reason to believe ancient Israelites would have gone to Casa Bonita and they would have enjoyed the sopapillas with honey after the meal. Just keep bringing them, right? So if that's the case... If, if yeast and honey wouldn't have been seen maybe negatively, well, then why can't you use them in the grain offering? Well, here's one other idea, and this was suggested by that anthropologist, Mary Douglas, that I mentioned before, who studied cultures. And she studied the elements of these rituals, and she saw that all of these elements were often very symbolic. And so she suggests, well, maybe since yeast and honey were seen as agents of transformation and generation that humans use to bring new life. In other words, we use yeast and honey to transform flour into rising bread, to transform grape juice into wine. We are using them to bring new life, but the altar is the place where humans are giving up their control over life. The altar, the fire pit, the tent of meeting is the place where you come and acknowledge, I am not in control of life. God is in control of life. Life ultimately comes from God, not from me. That life is the sacred domain of God. That if that was the view that when you bring your flour or you bring your bread to offer to God, you don't use yeast or honey. This is the place where only God brings life and has control over life. That's what she suggests. Now, we just don't know. So that's one of those places where we can think about some things, but we don't know. Now, uh, salt um, was primarily used as a preservative in the ancient world. Uh, They didn't put salt on food to make it taste better, right? That's what we primarily use salt for now. In a world without refrigeration, they use salt almost exclusively to preserve food, to make it last, especially meat, right? It made things last. And so salt was often a symbol used in covenants. So when you made a covenant with another person, you're entering into a contract with them a partnership with them. You are promising to uphold your part of the covenant. They are promising to uphold their part of the covenant. And sometimes in order to finalize or symbolize a covenant in the ancient world, people would exchange salt. They would give salt to one another or they would sprinkle salt or they would share a meal that had salt in it. And the salt symbolized that this covenant is going to last. 
This covenant will endure. This covenant is not just a temporary thing. I'm not just going to uphold my part of the covenant as long as it serves me. I'm going to do it because I have now bought into the covenant and this covenant will last and we're both going to keep our part of the covenant, right? In our world, we use rings (laughs) in a marriage covenant ceremony, right? When you exchange rings, a ring has no functional purpose whatsoever in a marriage. (laughs) There is no reason that anyone has to put a ring on their finger. It might be way more comfortable to live a life without rings on your fingers. It is simply a symbol of this new covenant that someone is entering into. And in the ancient world, that symbol was not a ring. It was salt. And so the text says in chapter 2, Leviticus, add salt to all of your grain offerings. And it's not explained why, right? Just like in our world, when a woman gets engaged and all of her friends see the new ring on her finger and they ask, what's the story? And tell us how it happened and all that. Nobody stops and says, now, wait a second. Why did he buy you a piece of metal? And why is he now forcing you to put this piece of metal on one of your fingers? Like we don't explain that. We all get what's going on there. And that's what was going on with the salt in the grain offering. Now, let me explore one final question that I think uh, was raised, or at least was raised for me, and then we'll wrap up for this podcast. Um, Leviticus chapters 1 through 5 offers or describes five offerings or gifts uh, that the Israelites could bring to God. The first three are voluntary gifts. The last two are about sin. And they are not voluntary. They are gifts that you are supposed to bring when there is some wrongdoing that has happened in your life or in your community and you become aware of it and you recognize it needs to be acknowledged. And we're going to unpack those last two offerings a whole bunch in the next message. And I think you'll see that they're actually described quite differently than you might have thought they were described. They're different than we think they are. But here's a question that I had when I first read this, and maybe you have. Is there a purpose to the order that these five gifts are given? They're told, uh, were described uh, as the burnt offering, then the grain offering, um, and then the fellowship offering, and then there's two uh, sort of sin offerings. I don't like that description, but we'll we'll unpack that next time. The the, the last two. Is there a purpose in this this order? Are you supposed to offer the gifts in this order? Are they listed in this order because uh, the most important are the first ones and the least important are the last ones? Or is it the opposite? The least important are the first ones and the most important are the last ones, right? And this gets complicated because when you get to chapter six and seven, there are some additional instructions given. It's kind of like, oh yeah, um, if you're a priest, here's a few additional instructions about all these offerings. And in um, in that In those chapters, the order is slightly different. And then in chapter 9, they have a big ceremony where they launch this whole system. It's like launch day, inauguration day for the tent of meeting and the offerings to start. And there's a different order used there. So let me walk through the order real quick, and then I'll explain what might be going on. Um, Chapters 1 through 5, there's the voluntary offerings, the burnt, the grain, and the fellowship. And then there's the two sin offerings. Um, chapter six and seven, there's the burnt and grain offering described. Then the two sin offerings are described. And then the fellowship offering is described last. And probably the difference there is this is more administrative because those details in chapter six and seven are for just the priests. Hey, if you're one of the priests taking care of all this, here's some things you need to know. Here's some additional details. And for them, the burnt and the grain offerings were the most common. These were like the daily common offerings that were offered all the time. Then the sin offerings were more specific when something has gone wrong and someone needs to offer one of these. And then the fellowship offerings were usually more personally motivated. It was when someone specifically is expressing gratitude or making a vow or doing it out of the goodness of their heart. And so maybe there's just an an administrative order for them in chapter 6 and 7, and that's why the order is different. But then, 
In Leviticus chapter 9, we're going to read this in more detail later, uh, the sin offering comes first. They offer sin offerings, and then they offer burnt and grain offerings, and last, they offer fellowship offerings. And I think there's something interesting going on with the order of Leviticus 9. The order um, is basically communicating this. We have to start with the sin offerings. And what I'm going to show you is the sin offerings. One of them is really more of a purification offering. And the idea is this. If we want to meet with God, if we want to be with him, if we want to live with him, if we want to get to know him, but I feel dirty, (laughs) and I know that he is holy and he is not, and I feel like I'm kind of dirty, like I've been working in the yard or I've done things in my life that have made me dirty, then I need to be made clean and I need to be made pure first. It's like going to a nice dinner with someone. If I'm going to go meet with God and have a nice dinner with him, you kind of need to take a shower first, right? And that's the sin offerings. You need to be purified of anything that has made you dirty first. So you offer the sin offerings. Then I'm going to give myself or surrender myself to God. That's the burnt offering and the grain offering. That's like me now getting dressed up for the meal. I'm getting dressed up and ready for the meal. And then you finish with the actual meal. Like you go meet someone, you have dinner with God. That's the fellowship offering, right? So I think this follows an impulse that we all have. Sometimes when we approach God in worship, maybe even just when we approach him in prayer, that if there's some sin in my life, if there's something that made, has made me dirty, I need to deal with that first. I, kinda, I, I need to start, and sometimes we start our prayers with confession. Like I need to confess and deal with that first. Let's deal with that first. Then, then I can thank God and be thankful to him and celebrate him and give myself to him, right? And then I can commune with him. Then I hang out with him. Then we talk to him. Then we tell him what's going on in our lives. Then we tell him what we need. We ask him for things, right? It's almost like that order of sin offerings, sort of burnt and grain offerings, and then fellowship offering last. It follows an impulse that we all have that we need to deal with our sin. We need to confess things first. Then we offer ourselves to God and then we commune with him. And I think that is one impulse and that is a good impulse and that is a right impulse. And that was the impulse when they inaugurated all of this. And that's the impulse of chapter nine in Leviticus. But it also seems that we can get so focused at times on our dirtiness on our sin, on this idea that maybe God is displeased with me most of the time, right? God is always disappointed in me. God is always angry at me. I always have to clean myself up and get my act together before God will even let me into his presence, right? And you can see how that idea can start to permeate our lives, And you can see how that idea can be taken to its extreme. And you can see how we could start feeling judged and condemned and unworthy all of the time. And we see this in Jesus' day where the religious leaders made everybody else often feel that way because they were perfect and they did all the right things and they kept all all the laws and everyone else always felt unworthy. Everyone else always felt dirty because they could never be as good and holy as all of the religious leaders. And what did Jesus do? He spent a whole lot of time with all of the dirty and unworthy people, all the people who were unclean, all the people who were broken, all the people who had screwed up their lives, all the people who felt like they were unworthy. And what did Jesus do with them all the time he shared meals with them he ate meals with them. he also it should be noted he also ate tons of meals with religious leaders he ate meals with everybody and jesus's message seemed to be not this get your life together make yourself clean 
And then you can sit at the table and eat with me. Jesus seemed to flip that completely around. Sit at the table. Come and eat with me. And I'll help make you clean. I will help you get your life together. And that's the impulse of Leviticus chapters 1 through 5. We think Leviticus is harsh, but that's the impulse. It doesn't start with your sin. It doesn't start with your shortcomings. It doesn't start with your guilt. It doesn't start with your shame. It starts with, you want to draw near to me? You want to come be with God? You want to offer yourself to God? Come eat with me? That's the burnt offering. That's the grain offering. That's the fellowship offering. Let's start there. Oh yeah. And when you stumble, when you fall, when you screw up, when you make a mess of things, well, yeah, we need to deal with that too. That's important. There's a couple of gifts or offerings that'll help you deal with that. But it's going to start with your desire to draw near to me. So, that is Leviticus chapters 1 through 3. Uh, maybe more detail than you ever wanted about honey and yeast and internal organs and poop, right? Um, next week, we're going to talk about, uh, in our next message, we'll talk about the two uh, sin offerings. And as I said, I think you'll see they're different than we think they are. Um, and we'll begin to ask more questions about how Leviticus applies uh, to our lives today and what we can get out of this whole study. Um, Thanks for listening. One more thing. Uh, if you have a question that you think we should discuss, go to newdenver.org uh, slash Leviticus. And at the bottom of that page, you will see a link where you can go and you can submit more questions. And uh, we can talk about those if we have time in these messages together. Thanks so much for listening.